welcome everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Psychology Is podcast. The name of this podcast is based on the saying, where people are, psychology is. So here we are. And I'm here with Nicole Stewart today. And Nicole's a social worker and a yoga teacher and has conceptualized self-care in a very intriguing, helpful way that has me all inspired and just excited to ask you a bunch of questions. So Nicole, will you just introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much, Nick. It's wonderful to be here. Um, and hello to all your viewers. Um, my name is Nicole Stewart and I am a social worker. I've been a social worker for 20 years and I've done it in the um, juvenile justice, foster care, social services sector. Um, and currently I'm in education as a school social worker. So I've, I had 10 years in one, uh, mostly in social services and 10 years now going on 11 in education. Um, and I've, I've done a lot of different things in social work. So I'm excited to share about those. Um, and because of within those 20 years, I've experienced a few burnouts, three major ones. Um, those burnouts were my, inf th those really informed me on what I call radical self-care and the need for it. Um, and the reason for that was because I did it wrong, not wrong, but I, I kind of stumbled through self-care when I was a new social worker. Mm. Um, so everything I'm going to share today is hard one, <laughs> um, and has been fully experienced and embodied by me in the 20 years of my, of my service. Mm. I want to read, uh, something straight from your website, which of course I'll, I'll link in the description, but right on the homepage you wrote in order to effectively do work with other human beings, we must cultivate deep, courageous self-care practices or radical tendencies to keep ourselves sustained in the change-making work this world needs. And I think that's a, a beautiful way to put it. And I think that this conversation will be relatable to everybody and relevant for everybody. Some, some people listening will know exactly what it's like to experience burnout, and they're going to probably be relating to what you describe. And then some people might not have experienced that, and you don't have to. You can learn from the people who, like Nicole said, have kind of earned the wisdom the hard way so that not everyone has to, so that we can share the wisdom. So I think, like I said, everyone will find this to be relevant, and taking care of ourselves is indeed crucial if we're going to continue taking care of other people and making a positive impact in the world. And I know I'm saying obvious things, but hopefully it's a good reminder. So maybe we can start with you first, just describing what you do as a social worker, and then we'll get into the topic of burnout and self-care. But I think that, um, I just wanna say up front, I I'm super fond of social workers. I've worked with them and I just love the way that you have expertise in psychology and you apply it in extremely practical ways. That's my observation. And that's why I appreciate it so much. So please share, what does your work look like as a social worker? Yeah, well, thank you for that invitation. And, and you mentioned that these things are kind of obvious what you're saying, but actually what I found is that it's not, even mm -hmm. for those of us in this work who are doing work that is very heavy, we're connected with very heavy content, even traumatic content, there still seems to be this lack of understanding or awareness or or of attention on self-care. And that's partly why I'm really excited to be sharing a lot of this. Mm. Um, so as a social worker, um, social work is a lot like psychology where you, once you have that skill set, you can apply it in different 
arenas. Um, so you can be a social worker in hospitals, in schools, in community organizations and nonprofits, um, even in funeral homes. I, I know there are some funeral homes that have a, a social worker on staff to comfort the families and walk them through that process. Um, you can be a social worker who, is, who helps folks through the court system. You can be a social worker who helps folks through the hospice care system. Um, so the goal of being a social worker is simply just to um, help support folks through a process, a social process of any kind, whether it's again, education, hospitalization, um, birth or, you know, birth to death and everything in between basically. Nice. Um, and I've had the privilege of working in a variety of different um, arenas as a social worker. And what I found actually happens is I get hired for one position. And then once they find out I'm a social worker or that I have a certain skill set, then I'm asked to do a bunch of other things, mm -hmm. um, which has been really beautiful. Um, so I've, I've gotten to experience a lot of different aspects of social work. Um, I actually got my master's of social work, my MSW um, from UConn School of Social Work, go Huskies. Mm -hmm. uh, and they actually had tracks of, of different um, social work components. And I chose the administrative track. So while I learned about case management and one-on-one -on -one and group work and things like that, I also learned about how to create a nonprofit, how to seat and, and manage a board how to write grants. Um, so my first, uh, and I did a lot of research when I was in grad school, um, my field placements were with professors who were doing research around domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, so my first like jump into the social work world, actual doing the work, um, one, I had two field placements at the same time. One was in a juvenile residential facility uh, for kids with severe mental health issues. And the other was uh, doing research with one of my professors who was, was reviewing uh, case files of sex offenders. Uh, so I would go to class all day and talk about traumatic content or these are the ways to be a social worker and these are the things to be aware of. And then I'd spend the rest of my day or afternoon or evening in my field placement working with kids who were you know, dealing with a lot of challenges and then reviewing case files of convicted sex offenders. <laughs> And nowhere in any of that did anybody talk to me about self-care mm. or even about the content that I was going to be holding. Mm. And that was that kind of helped produce my first burnout. Um, after graduate school, I, well, actually, let me back up. When I was doing the research for my professor, it was myself and another student. And the goal of that research was that we went, we would go to a, um, this was a center for therapy for sex offenders. And part of their treatment, once they got convicted, was that they had to write out what they did as a way of confessing, you know. Um, and our job was really to go in, read what they had written and code it for to find things like what was the relationship between, you know, the victim and the offender? Mm -hmm. um, how did they gain access? What was, you know, there was a lot of detail that we had to pull out of their narrative. So I was sit for three hours at a time and read narratives from sex offenders. Wow. We did that for the first two weeks and then week three, I got to the office and I was supposed to be met by the other student and she didn't show up. So I waited a little while and then I called her. That was before we had cell phones. <laughs> so I, well, we had cell phones, but I called her from the landline mm -hmm. and um, she basically said, she's like, I'm not coming back. I'm, I'm not coming back. It's too much. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I can't sleep. I'm having nightmares. I can't do this. So I had to call our professor and let her know. And that's when she was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even 
I didn't prep you guys for that work. I didn't give you, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, I've been dealing with that content for so long. I didn't even think to talk to you guys about that. So that was my first kind of awareness with vicarious trauma, mm -hmm. really understanding like, oh, this, what we are taking in is heavy. And some of us can hold it and some of us can't, but we, we still need tools to be able to hold it. Right. There's nothing wrong with her. She wasn't weak. She, she still became a social worker, but she, from that experience, learned what her boundaries are with social work. She did mm -hmm. not want to work in that world. Um, but from that, I, I then, my first job out of graduate school was, was working at a rape crisis uh, coalition. So again, this, all this heavy content is kind of eight to 12 hours a day, right? Just penetrating. And that's when I kind of hit a brick wall. Um, my first burnout, I experienced physical symptoms that just slowly kind of came on. And then eventually I was like, oh, this is weird. I was losing my hair. I wasn't able to sleep. Um, I was losing, well, first I gained a bunch of weight because of the, so the self-care I was doing was a lot of treating myself. Um, <laughs> and that ended up just not being the healthiest. Mm -hmm. I found that when I did home visits, I got really nervous. So in order to treat myself afterwards, I would take myself and get a fry and a large shake. Um, and that worked for me in the moment. It felt good, right? I, it let me release a little bit. Um, but when I started doing that every day, that, right, it, it felt good in the moment, but it had long-term consequences. Right. Um, my first burnout, I did not connect the vicarious trauma that I was holding from the work and the triggering of my own childhood trauma. Mm. Right. So those two things were, it took me even to my the second burnout to really be like, Oh, that's what, <laughs> that's what exploded that first time. Right. Um, and I think that's something that we don't talk about in this help, what I call helping healing and change making work. We don't acknowledge the inherent trauma and vicarious trauma in the work because it is work with other people and their suffering mm. period full stop. You can be an amazing human being. You can, you can do all the things there is still just, inherently vicarious trauma in this work because you are working with people suffering. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, that was, you know, and, and my shift from doing that work to education came when my husband and I moved from Connecticut to California because he had finished his PhD and got a position out here. Um, and I was looking for jobs out here in the rape crisis field because that's what I had been doing before. And he kind of pulled me aside and he said, sweetheart, I love you. I love your passion. You're an amazing social worker. And can you please do anything, anything that isn't related to sexual assault? Mm. Right. And that's another piece when your partners and your children and the other people in your life are being impacted by the work. And it wasn't that I was bringing the work home, like, and talking about it, but I was bringing it home. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that got to a point where, you know, again, I'm, I'm steeped in rape crisis for eight to 10 hours a day. And then I go home and my adoring husband, who I love and who is one of the safest humans in the world, you know, goes to just put his hand on me and I jump. Mm. Right? And that became an automatic body reflex that I didn't even notice until he told me. He's mm. like, you do notice that you jump anytime I touch you, right? Mm. Hadn't noticed. It was just my body responding to all the trauma that I was absorbing. So I, that's when I shifted and I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be a social worker in education because there's no trauma there. <laughs> and every time I tell that story, when I'm working with teachers, they all start laughing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, and it's interesting what you said too about the way that, that you hadn't realized at first that this vicarious trauma was connected to your own childhood trauma. That's, 
Yeah, that's significant. And I can imagine it's already like, I think I'm, I come from a place where I do experience that vicarious trauma with the people I work with, but in most cases, at least it doesn't connect to a personal experience, which is still heavy, but maybe not quite as penetrating. So that that's just really interesting. So if I may dwell on that for a moment, did it motivate you to resolve or attempt to heal more thoroughly from those childhood traumas? Yeah, well, and it was it was really interesting because I I could I I knew you know, and I'll just talk. We're talking about we'll we'll talk about aces. I'm sure you've talked about that on your on this podcast before, right? Average not, yet, not yet, actually, but oh, let's okay. talk about it. Adverse yeah. childhood experiences study. That's that's yeah, important. So that's no joke. Um, so the adverse childhood experience study just recognizes ten adverse experiences that one might experience during childhood and then draws a almost direct correlation to the number of ACEs of the 10 that you have um, to long-term health consequences, negative impacts of health. Um, and so for that context, I had one ACE growing up. I am a survivor of child sexual abuse. Um, and it was a one-time incident. I was able to tell my parents, they got me the help I needed, kept me safe. Um, and just having that one ACE one time shifted the trajectory of my life. Right. And I kind of knew that I wanted to be a social worker because I wanted to help kids who didn't have the response that I got from my parents. Mm. Right. So when, and it happened for me when I was five years old and then it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to realize like, Oh wait, some kids are hurt by people outside of their home. And then they tell their parents and their parents don't believe them Mm. or worse. It's their parents who are doing it to them. Like that blew my mind. Like the, the reality and the awareness of abuse when I was a kid, like I couldn't square it. Like how are parents hurting their kids? Like it didn't, right. It couldn't align it in my body. Mm. And that's why I decided I wanted to do that work. Mm. So even knowing that that's why I went into social work, I didn't still make the correlation to I'm doing all this rape crisis work. And, and, even more specifically, I was specifically working with five to eight year olds. Mm. Right. And the physical triggering that was happening to me, partly because I, and I think a lot of social social workers and folks in those fields do this is we, we assume as soon as we are in the seat of that person, everything else that we've experienced doesn't count. We can cut Mm. it off. We can just be here. And I, that, that doesn't impact me. That was when I was younger. I'm, Mm. I'm strong. I've got it. I can do this work. And that's true up until a point. Right. Um, and it may not be the, the thing that hits you in the first five years. It might not be until you've been a social worker for 15 years. And that one, that one interaction with a, someone you're serving, right, triggers something for you and your, your whole body responds. Mm. Um, so it took me to really um, very directly look at that and untangle that. Even though I kind of had a like aura of like, yeah, this is why I want to be a social worker because I don't want any other kid to to deal with what I dealt with. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a strange thing, right? Like I knew that that's why I was doing it, but I didn't have any uh, reality or realization that that could also then impact my health and my my nervous system. Makes so much sense. And, and the way you've described it in a couple of ways now is that you felt this physical triggering, like you said. And I think that's, that's, um, a good, a good, um, just kind of something to watch for, I suppose you could say, because I think often that is how it manifests. It's very visceral uh, trauma response 
or um, something that is kind of awakening an association related to a trauma is that it does manifest physically and emotionally before it manifests cognitively. So you might not consciously make the connection just like you're describing, even though your body is reacting. And this is probably why one of the more widely read books on trauma is called The Body Keeps the Score. And And the body is just really good at giving us signals and information related to unresolved pain yeah Russell Vandercock's book the body keeps the score and Gabor Mate's um when the body says no mm. right? like your body will let you know and my body was telling me that right the hair loss the weight gain and then the weight loss and then the insomnia my body was telling me those things but I almost was taking them as a badge of honor because I was doing really challenging work in a really challenging time mm. right like and that's, that also tends to happen to us that those of us who are helpers, healers, and change makers, you know, we, it's, it's easy to take on that hero or that martyr, right. That like savior or martyr complex. Mm-hmm. And we will feel pains and we'll feel tightness in our chest or in our throat, or we'll feel the bottom drop out of our belly. And we don't stop and, and take a mindful pause to say, Oh, what was that? We just hold all of it. And, and, you know, I've talked to social workers um, in different agencies for the last 10 years, I've been offering professional development and conference presentations. And I will tell you after every presentation, a veteran social worker, a veteran nurse, a veteran teacher, someone who's been in the field 20 years or more will come to me and say, finally, someone is putting a name to what I've been feeling in my body this whole time. I knew something was off, but I always thought it was just me. And I just wasn't strong enough, or maybe I just needed to change jobs. But now I realize like that was vicarious trauma. That was moral injury. That was secondary trauma or straight trauma. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's the awareness of that is what shifts then for us to say, okay, now, now I need a solution then. What's the antidote? What's the answer? Yes. And that's where radical self-care comes in for me. Right. Okay. So can you pick up from, from when you were living in California and your husband was reflecting back to you? you know, some of these signs. So I imagine that was the precipice of your second burnout. Is that right? Uh, Actually, my second burnout took a little while. I was in schools for a little while and I came to California in 2007. um, And shortly after we had a recession. (laughs) So I, um, I was in a position for a little while and then I got a pink slip, like many teachers in the state of California, well, everywhere really Mm -hmm. um, in 2009. Uh, I have it framed on my desk as a gentle reminder. Um, and, but then I, after that, I found an, um, more work and the two districts that I was in initially, um, I was always kind of, um, second or third kind of under the superintendent, not as like an assistant superintendent, but just, you know, Hey, there's a crisis, Nicole, can you go out? And it was very much directed from the superintendent. Um, and in being very close to superintendent and the board, you're close to all the politics in education. And that's just, watching, you know, the, the, the stuff get made is not really what you want to see all the time. It exposes you to things that you don't really want to think about. Um, but one of the things that I was exposed to through that in these two districts was racism, just straight up racism. Um, I had the local paper writing articles about me, like who, who am I and how, why do I deserve this job? Um, partly because of the job I took, I, I replaced an older white man. Um, he retired. I didn't like take it from him, but um, that, that community wasn't used to having a person of color kind of doing the work that I was doing. 
Um, and I, I, I watched both of my superintendents that I, I really much admired and appreciated have micro and macro aggressions against them. Um, one of my superintendents was Iranian American and it was during all, you know, a lot of the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were articles written about how she was a plant from the Taliban. Um, she would ha- she would do amazing programs to give laptops to our homeless kids. And then people would come to the board and say horrible things about those kids and why they didn't deserve those things like in public on record. Um, so three or four years of that just accumulating in my body, um, that was my second burnout. And that was really connected more to not so much vicarious trauma, but moral injury and racism, just straight up. Um, you know, I'm someone who can very much hold the line, but after being, you know, dug at so many times, it really does impact you. Um, so that was another health, it became another health issue with that one. I was actually being tested to see if I had lupus, um, because there was so many symptoms happening in my body that I, you know, my doctors and I didn't know what was going on. I ended up quitting that job. And two weeks after I quit that job, all my symptoms disappeared. All of them. Um, so then I, my third burnout was actually 2017. Um, kind of similar. It was kind of a mix of both actually. So it was a mix of dealing with some kind of nonsense in the community and, and within colleagues, some microaggressions. Um, but a lot of it was just overwhelm and overwork. Um, I, I've never been in a school district where there have been more than one social worker. Like I'm a social worker in my current district and we have 10,000 kids and I'm the only one. Wow. Um, so it just becomes a lot of, you know, Nicole will solve that, you know? Um, and the challenge then is a lot of folks don't really understand what social work is. So they expect that, you know, as soon as Nicole gets the case, it's going to be magic and everything's fixed. And when they realize like, I can't build more housing here, or, you know, um, I can't open more food banks. I can just give them what we have. Um, sometimes it just becomes a, the expectations are, are wildly out of sync with what I can actually do in the systems that we have. And that can cause that, that misalignment and a little bit of burnout as well. Mm. My last burnout, the one in 2017, I got shingles. Wow. And that was my, like, that was the end of it. That was when I finally kind of decided to pull in really heavy to this, to the radical self-care. Cause I'd been kind of dabbling and like, yeah, this makes sense, but I don't know about this part. And after that last burnout where I got shingles and, you know, all my doctors are like, what's going on? How, how are you getting shingles at 37? Um, that's when I realized like, oh, this work can kill us if we don't really, really, really focus on our, on our self-care. And that's why I use the word radical. Radical is right. Grasping at the root or transforming something. And our work can transform our nervous system. It can transform the way our genes are expressed. It can transform our health outcomes. Like that's crazy and radical to me. Mm. So why wouldn't we then also meet that with self-care that is just as radical? Mm. I was going to ask you that, what, why you use the term radical. Um, and you just define it as grasping at the root, you said, or transforming. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And it's, it's even just a term that when you hear it, it you take a pause, you know, it, it gives the it gives the idea of self care, more power, when you add the word radical to it. And so okay, let's talk a, about radical self care. And thank you for sharing all those personal details and experiences. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to 
hear about like the, the psychosomatic symptoms. Um, that's just, it's very common, unfortunately. These are, these are things that are very, whenever I give a presentation and I just start listing things out, you can start to see everybody in the room going like, oh yeah, oh mm-hmm. yeah, oh yeah. Right. And then you ask like, how many of you go through a whole work day without eating anything? Almost all the hands go up. Mm-hmm. How many of you take your mental health days? No hands go up, right? Like we're really out of sync in our work. And I think it's because we're not being honest about the content of the work, what we hold in the work and what we need to do to address those. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. And I feel like self-care, it's kind of like one of those, something we hear so often that we almost become dismissive of it. I find that, you know, for example, breathe deeply is another phrase like that where people have seen it on in calligraphy on plaques and have heard it so many times that they're like, okay, yeah, but seriously, what should I do? And it just, leads them to overlook what can become what can be very powerful tools for regulating our nervous system or just coping with life. So I think self-care is a phrase like that where people hear it and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's it's kind of the attitude that they get upon receiving that. So that is another reason that I like that you've kind of added this term radical because um, it makes you think a little bit more about it. And you've really conceptualized this very nicely. Um, and many people are aware of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's probably one of the most well-known concepts in psychology, and it's, it's great indeed, and it's very basic. You know, the, initially there were these five levels, as people probably know, it's like biological needs at the bottom, safety, love and belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization. Then there was a little expansion to add like cognitive needs, aesthetic needs, and then at the peak, transcendence. But even that eight level, eight tiered model is still quite basic. And, and you've added a lot of levels. A lot, you've kind of identified many other needs that we all have that relate to what it means to, to take care of yourself. So you've categorized it in terms of like basic care, deep self-care and courageous self-care. And I wish we had time to go in depth about all of them but perhaps we can focus mostly on like the deep and then especially the courageous self-care. Um, and you can elaborate on this, but I'll just mention really quick. I'm certainly an advocate when it comes to any kind of emotional struggles or even disorders or any kind of suffering. I think there should be this first line of defense that we could describe as like you described the basics, the very basics of self-care. Because sometimes um, sufficiently meeting a basic need is actually the simple solution that is called for. So nourishing your body, hydrating, sleeping, and moving. Those basics right there can do wonders. And at least, even if those are not going to, for example, help a person heal from trauma, however they can be very stabilizing. It can really help a person feel more emotionally stable, feel more clear headed, feel like they have the energy to deal with this processing that needs to happen. So please elaborate if you'd like, but I just wanted to kind of touch on the basics like this. Yeah, well, and I think you set it up perfectly. We, We often see the things that are the basic ones as almost esoteric or 
kind of like, oh yeah, okay, safety, sure. But we forget like safety can be like personal, physical, bodily safety as well, right? Um, and things like take a deep breath. Yeah, it sounds very dismissive, but when you're really doing crisis work, right? When a kid comes into my office with a, in a panic attack, breath work is what we're gonna do. There's, there's all I need to do. There's nothing else, right? I just need to focus on that child's breath and bring it into regulation. Um, so the simplest things can still be the biggest ones. So yeah, I, um, and I, the reason I kind of shifted these categories was just because of what you said before, right? Self-care, everyone's like, oh, okay, self-care. And that gets really stretched out and commodified, mm -hmm. right? Um, you can be sold self-care. Right. Radical self-care is not something that you can buy. Mm -hmm. um, certainly you can buy things that will help you do them. But when I talk about radical self-care, I'm like, what are the things that someone can do that they don't need to pay someone to do? They don't need to go somewhere to do it. Um, a lot of it, and it, I do also want to make just a, maybe a disclaimer at the beginning. Radical self-care does not absolve the organizations and the systems of fixing what they need to fix so that they're not overworking their staff, right? So we can do all the radical self-care ourselves and still be part of an organization that is going to demand 12-hour days and the hustle culture and not pay women as much as men and those kinds of things, right? Those organizations do need to do organizational care, right? Um, and community care. I'm just talking about what we can control. So, um, so I'm not discounting the fact that these, play these systems still have work to do. Yes, beautiful. But Right. So when we talk about like basic self-care, I'm talking about like super basic level hygiene, just to be a human in the world. What do you need to do? Mm -hmm. You got to eat, you got to drink, you got to sleep and you got to move. Um, and those are the things that start to, even though they're basic and they might seem small or trivial, when we start to experience very severe health symptoms, right? One of the very first things we come back to is, well, what is your sleep like? You know, are you getting enough sleep? What's the quality of your sleep? Um, so sleep is not a small thing. It isn't. And, you know, I work with teenagers and I'm constantly begging them to get more sleep. And we also know that the, one of the antecedents to teen suicide is lack of sleep or insomnia, right? Um, often it's three or more days that they haven't been able to sleep. And then there's some kind of suicidal activity. Um, so it's very, very important. This is also where we talk about just that foundation of safety of like, okay, I have the basic, my basic needs met. Now I can jump up to the next level. Um, and these are kind of, I see them as steps and, and kind of building on, on each other because it's really challenging to meditate and think about your intellectual and spiritual needs if you're hungry yeah. and you haven't slept for three days, right? Um, so they definitely do kind of build on each other. When it comes to the deeper self-care um, and deep, I, it's just really going like a little bit more down or like having a more profound awareness and understanding. Um, that's where I really feel like that those relational needs come in. So connecting with other humans or sentient beings, I always say other humans. And then I realize for some days, like we don't want to people anymore. We just maybe need a dog or a cat or a hamster. Right. And that's fine too. That's still a connection. Mm -hmm. Um, really being able to understand what is being triggered for us when we are in that space of unease or dis-ease. Um, and then also being aware of our attachment style. Um, what was our attachment or what were some of the situations in childhood that we had to adjust to? Um, and how does, how might that show up now? And when we talk about childhood stuff, I know everyone wants to go immediately to childhood trauma, but I think it's also important just to recognize that a lot of us who are helpers, healers, and change makers are empaths. 
and I would say super empaths or hyper empaths. Um, so what that means to me is, and I know I was one, you know, other than my one ace, I had a phenomenal childhood. I was very well loved and supported and told I could do anything and be anything. And I know that my mom was very overwhelmed with having to take care of three kids and take care of my father and be the housewife. So for me as a very empathic child, I was never told this explicitly, but I shrunk myself and would be really quiet and, and not make my needs known so that I didn't burden my mom. Mm. Right? Uh, so that's a, that's a behavior that I took into adulthood. Didn't result, it didn't come from any trauma. It just came from living in the environment I was in. Right. Um, so sometimes it's just nuances like that. Um, and then really understanding our nervous system and how it works, our parasympathetic, our sympathetic nervous system, and how those things kind of physically show up for us. Mm. Um, because that that is the necessary foundation to move to the next level that is the more courageous, radical self-care. Yes. Um, and and when we talk about that, again, I what, one of the things that I found myself drawn to when I was in my MSW program, so taking it back, I actually started doing yoga. Um, I first started doing it at a Bally's gym and I purely wanted a yoga booty. There's no, I didn't want, you know, enlightenment. I just wanted that. <laughs> um, so I went and, but what I found when I went to yoga was that I was in a community of like-minded people. I was in a space where I could, I had a safe container to pull into my body. And that's really where I started to be, to, to, kind of thaw out some of the body parts that I had numbed from my own trauma. Again, completely unaware of it, but I'm just like, oh, I've never felt that muscle before. Or this is a weird posture. I don't think my body's ever taken up this much space. So I studied yoga as a, as a student all the way through my MSW program. And I do think that kind of kept me buoyed in a way without me knowing it. So it was a radical self-care practice that I didn't realize was, was helping my nervous system. That's one of the ones that then once I realized kind of the connection with my trauma and being triggered in the work that I do, but I love this work, so I'm not going anywhere. That's when I really turned back to yoga. And then that's when I wanted, that's when I became a teacher. That's when I studied yoga and really became a teacher because I was like, I know how it feels in my body, but I want to understand why, what is this, what's happening and why. Um, and, and as soon as I started really understanding more about the nervous system and how yoga uses the breath and the physical movements to put our bodies in a state of calm or put our brains in a certain state, um, I was kind of all in. Beautiful. And that's kind of how I am with all of my practices. I am a yoga teacher. I'm a meditation guide. I'm also a sound healer, a certified sound healer. Mm -hmm. And I'm very skeptical of all these things. <laughs> so I do a lot of research and a lot of like, okay, I, I know how it feels, but tell me what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the shift that I did to get to that courageous self-care, mm -hmm. really identifying our, like who we are and how we show up, um, clearing out the things that aren't ours to carry, whether it's, you know, someone else's trauma that we've been stuck with from, for a long time or the work that we have, that we are currently doing. Um, I, I have a podcast. It's one of my more popular ones. And, it, and the topic is how to care without carrying. Right. And that's a big, that's a, that's a bigger concept. I think that really encapsulates radical self-care is how do we do this work and be the compassionate, empathetic, engaged people that we need to be to, to have the positive outcomes we need while also not destroying ourselves while being able to really buffer ourselves from that impact. Um, and that's, that's part of 
kind of that shift of really being able to, um, because some of the, some of the ways that we buffer ourselves might be, you know, a guided practice and, and coming into like a meditative state and, and doing your work from there. And what I mean, and that kind of sounds a little hokey to some folks, but what I mean is there are times when I have to sit in a session with a student or with a parent and really be engaged, but have a little bit of space, right? So that I'm not taking on everything that they're sharing with me. And that takes a lot of time and practice to do. So you're not just dissociating in the meeting and, you know, right. that the, the person that you're talking to thinks you've gone to a daydream. Right. Um, you're actually engaged and you're able to be there, but you've built a kind of a psychic buffer. Mm-hmm. And that sounds silly. And even me saying those words sounds silly to me because I'm very practical. But I found that that is that's the level of self-care we have to get to when we're really doing this work with other other humans. Mm. I can totally relate to the way that the the skepticism you express, you know, I've also been studying yoga for a while and I I come at it in the same with the same attitude and I'm always careful. I never want to sound ungrounded in a sense, you know, I too, I I try to, I'm very practical and even scientific. And so yet I'm also drawn to these very powerful spiritual practices and the idea of energy and things like that. So I can just relate to that. And a couple reflections on the the insight you were just sharing. A quick note on what you were saying about like attachment styles and relationships in early life. Your your example was just brilliant, you know, and, and I think it could be a good reflection for people. An attachment style, I think one way a person can think of it is it's like a template it becomes a template for what normal is in relationships. And if that's your deeply ingrained template, you'll be quite likely to carry out that pattern of behavior in your adult relationships too. And so it could be a good question, like what were my, my primary relationships in my most formative years? And is there any way that the template of those relationships is preventing the depth of my connection in my relationships now. Well said. And I think sometimes, you know, often we we can find factors in those templates that are preventing the depth of connection. So that was something that came to mind regarding that. And then um, uh, what what else came to my mind as you were talking about yoga and and mindfulness and meditation, I mean, I think, oh, yeah, it was just that it's an interesting idea that we don't always have to know how something works to know that it works. And this is something I think can be helpful for some people, especially who are kind of like us and and um, who are just not gullible, who don't fall for (laughs) fancy descriptions of why things work. If you find something and you know that it works and you can't explain exactly how the mechanisms by which it works still use it as a tool. And then, you know, some of us are going to be curious and motivated to explain the mechanisms by which it's working. But, you know, you don't have to know, for example, the specifics of how deep, slow breathing activates the parasympathetic nervous system to be able to feel a sense of relaxation as you breathe deeply and slowly. So those are my my two reflections. Um, So let's, let's talk more about courageous self-care 
What are some examples of what you mean by a courageous self-care? Or I'm sorry, is that what it is? Or courageous needs? Yeah, courageous self-care, yeah. Courageous self-care. Um, well, and so, well, and to your point really quickly about the, the relationship piece, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be something that is super, super violent or bad or big. Um, to add to kind of my story, right? Growing up the way I did and knowing that my mom was very overwhelmed, so I kind of pulled back. One of the things that when my husband and I first met each other, he would ask like, you know, where do you want to go tonight on a Friday night? Mm. And my response, because of the ways that I was, you know, adapted in childhood would always be whatever you want. Where do you want to eat? Wherever you want. What movie do you want to see? Whatever movie you want to see. And finally, at some point, my now husband kind of gently like took my hands and was like, look, I'm asking you what you want, because I really want to know what you like. I want to get to know you. But if you just say what I want, then I'm, I'm just dating myself. And that was a really beautiful way to kind of wake me up to that pattern without it being, you know, like this isn't working for us. But I had no idea that that was what was a positive pattern in my childhood doesn't work in my Mm -hmm. adult relationship. Right. So it's something really as simple as that can just be that shift, but that takes awareness and it takes a little bit of humility, right. And compassion to, to have those conversations. Um, And I do think it's really important though, that we like, when we are, and oftentimes for helpers, healers, and change makers, it's not until we're uncomfortable or we're, we're having some issues or we're noticing some symptoms that we start to investigate these things. Mm. Um, and my suggestion is that we do this preventatively. This yeah. is the work I wish I had done in my MSW program before I became a social worker in the world, right? So that I would have really had this foundation to then work from. But when I talk about uh, the courageous self-care, I kind of have six domains or six kind of areas that I, that I break it down into. Um, the first, and they're, they're all ours. And someone asked me if I did that on purpose. I didn't, I just happened to work in education. So my brain works in acronyms and alliteration. So the first is um, to remember and reconnect um, really. And I, and when I use the word remember, I, I mean like to bring back together the opposite of dismembering mm-hmm. because often in this work, we have to separate our, our personal lives and our professional lives. Sometimes that's a really good boundary for us because we might work in a, a, a occupation that's really dangerous, right? Like if you're a prison guard, you want separation from your work and your personal life. Um, the challenge with that is that it, it, when we are separating those parts of our lives that are majority of our life, right? We work all day and then we're with our family all the rest of the time that can really cause a split within us and a misalignment within us that we may not notice, but at some point we start to realize like we are code switching, we're role switching, and that takes a lot of energy. Um, So it's really about remembering parts of our bodies, our lives, our ethics, um, and our work, while also reconnecting to our purpose, our passion, and our people. Often when we start to do this work, again, because we are working with heavy content or we're trying to protect ourselves or the ones we serve, we can find ourselves getting disconnected from folks in our lives. Um, And that can be a challenge. You want, when you're doing this kind of heavy work, you want a contrast with, with your, with your friend group. You don't necessarily want to be talking about that work all the time. Um, So really that remembering and reconnecting. The next one is rebalancing and regulating. And these kind of build on themselves on each other as well. So once we've kind of remembered ourselves, right, put ourselves back to wholeness and reconnected back to our community 
and our passion. And I do want to be really clear with radical self-care. I don't find radical self-care and community care or collective care mutually exclusive. When we're doing radical self-care, yes, we are focusing on our individual needs, but it's for the collective. And there are ways that we can engage in collective self-care or collective care for ourselves that really does build us up. So I don't, I know a lot of people, when I talk about self-care, like, well, what about collective community care? To me, those things aren't mutually exclusive. And that's where that reconnect comes. You need a community of people around you to do this work. Then we go to rebalancing and and regulating. Um, And this one is as simple as it sounds, right? Noticing the ways that we are dysregulated by our work. Also being really aware of the ways that we might have to regulate to dysregulation in our work. And that's one of the things that I was able to finally untease for myself. I, I was feeling it in my body, but I couldn't articulate why. But sometimes what happens is when we've been in a, in a organization or, you know, in a system long enough, the dysfunction of that system kind of is so overwhelming. It takes over and our dysregulation, we eventually start to regulate to some, a system that isn't regulated itself. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. Cause normally when we're regulating, we are trying to find that homeostasis, but when we're in systems that are already hugely dysregulated, what might be regulation for us is actually regulating to the dysfunction of the place where we were working. Right. So that's when we find ourselves doing that hustle culture, no days off. You don't take mental health days because you, well, you could, but people are going to talk about you and, you know, then that's a taboo. Um, so really being able to set clear boundaries for our time, our energy and our attention between work and home um, while supporting our nervous system to really function at its highest and noticing if we are regulating to dysregulation or if we're actually regulating to, to our own needs. Um, and part of this work, like a practice would be um, like earthing or forest bathing, mm. right? Where your body really gets to regulate to nature. And that is a normal cadence, yeah. not regulating to right a, a school board or, yeah. you know, this new um, jail system or anything like that. Mm. Just, then, add, just add a quick note on that. Yeah. I, I just want to really highlight this because it's kind of, it reminds me of a quote by the, the Indian philosopher, Jiddu Krishnamurti, who said, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Mm. And I think that is just important. And often we do become well-adapted to abnormal Mm -hmm. situations or circumstances or systems. And it's important to remember that often the anxiety you might be experiencing under certain circumstances is a sign that the circumstances are off. Not that there's anything wrong with you whatsoever. And I'm aware that we can't simply walk away, you know, when it's like our job and we need to make ends meet and all that. We we can't necessarily walk away from dysregulated systems, like you're saying, but to kind of prevent ourselves from succumbing to just being adapted. And and, and like in the jail example, I think this is what it means to be institutionalized, to become fully adapted and be more used to living under that system than a more natural way of life that is true to who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way you put it reminds me like the, the reason I came up with that awareness or that understanding was through one of my foster children. I, I've been a foster parent to five, five young people and two of their babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but my oldest, who is now 27, um, when I met him, he was 15 and in juvenile hall. 
And it wasn't until he was 19 that he came to live with me. So he had been in juvenile hall and in, you know, ranch program and other things like that. And then once he got out, um, he came to live with my husband and I, and it was interesting because the, you know, he, he was, he had adapted, he was institutionalized. He had adapted to the institution. Um, he's the cleanest foster kid I've ever had. He would make his bed military style before he got out of bed and he would go to the bathroom, do his thing and clean the bathroom every time he used it. Like it was spotless. He would, you know, he was used to that institutionalized piece. And it was, it took a while for him to acclimate to being in a family. And he would even say, I feel more comfortable in a cage than I do in a family, which was heartbreaking to me. But that was what reminded me that, you know, his, his system had found homeostasis, but it had found homeostasis in a system that was not helpful or healthy. Exactly. Um, And unfortunately he's 27 and, and incarcerated again. And I think that's just because his, his nervous system is regulated to, incarceration and it breaks my heart to say that i thank you for sharing that and i i I witnessed this i i work in a jail and i i sometimes i almost hate to say it but i feel like sometimes i'll be working with somebody and they're about to get out but i can tell that they're not ready to to readapt to life outside the jail and that it will be very easy. It won't even actually feel all that intimidating, the idea of going back to jail. In some sense, there's a level of comfort with it because it's what they're used to. And so yeah. it's it's kind of predictable that a person, you know, might be back soon. And it's unfortunate. And but it requires like a, a pretty deep transformation to, like you're saying, like rebalance and regulate. Um, so yeah okay good so we have remember reconnect rebalance regulate Mm -hmm. okay and then our rituals and rhythms Mm. Um, and again once we have really understood where we are we've reconnected and remembered why we got into this work in the first place we're reconnected to our people our passion we are regulated and rebalancing and i will say sometimes rebalancing you you said we can't quit our jobs but sometimes rebalancing does mean get out Sure. Like get all the way out, right? Um, you know, and 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 find you can always be a social worker in some other area, but mm-hmm. maybe not in this area, and that's totally fine as well. That doesn't mean you're a failure. Doesn't mean you're a quitter. It just means you're recognizing the clear boundaries that you need for your health, and that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um. So, but with rituals and rhythms, again, with rhythm, recognizing that energy is a vibration. Vibration is life, right? I'm going to sound a little woo woo when I get to this part, but recognizing that. Our, the rhythm of our nervous system gets disrupted when we are experiencing trauma and vicarious trauma. And we have to, sometimes we're not aware of that dysrhythmia until we're, you know, our hair is falling out or we, we can't sleep or we have infertility problems because we're losing so much weight or right. Like all list host of things that I've heard from fellow helpers, healers, and change makers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way to kind of bring ourselves back into our, our, our natural rhythm is through rituals, I believe. So really finding those routines in our life, the parts of our life that we can kind of make a little bit more stable and structured, and then bring in a level of ceremony, a level of ritual. And for me, I mean, there are actual indigenous rituals that, you know, have kind of a whole milieu around them. When I talk about ritual, I just mean bringing purposeful intention to a process that you're doing. So for me, I make coffee every morning. Um, Sometimes if I'm not in a mindful space, I'm just, I'm waking up, I'm doing it while I'm doing other things. I'm checking my phone, blah, blah, blah. And then I have my coffee and I'm good. When I'm really ritualizing my coffee practice, 
I'm smelling the beans before I grind them. I'm putting them in my pour over. I'm really paying attention when I pour the water over, paying attention to the smell, the sound, the temperature, but like I am focused on my coffee. And that might only be five minutes. So it doesn't have to be, it's not like an hour coffee ceremony. <laughs> it's five minutes of intentional dedication to my coffee or my tea. Yeah. Um, and I also talk about creating rituals around home and work. So one of the things that I found that's really helped me, and of course with coronavirus, it's gone, but using your commute as a kind of a de-escalation tactic, right? So for me, when I would drive, and I do still go into my office occasionally. So when I leave my house and I go to work, I park my car at work and I pause and I take three deep breaths before I get out of the car. And I think about three things I want to get done that day. Then I go into my, go into work. The thing, same as the same as when I come home, right? I come home, I park my car and before I get out, take three deep breaths. And then I think about one thing that worked that day, one win. It might just be that I finally got that parent to call me back when I've been calling them seven times. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a small win like that, or it could be, Hey, I got one of my students got into the college of their choice, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is. And then I go into home, but it's it that pause, that very purposeful ritual of pausing and taking stock of my day or setting an intention for my day gives enough of a buffer there where I don't absorb what I'm dealing with all day. Yes. So rituals and rhythms, really getting back in sync with the world within us and when the world around us can be in crisis, Amen. because that's that's the the strength of uh, of this practice is that it gives us this solid rhythm, whether it's our circadian rhythm or our heartbeat or our breath, right? Where we can constantly come back to when everything around us is <laughs> spinning and shaking. Mm. And then the last, well, the the last one is rest and restore. Mm. Um, so again, really recognizing that we have to build purposeful and deliberate rest into our lives if we want to stay alive. And, you know, I know there's a, a social media tag, uh, the nap ministry, and I really appreciate what this, what this woman puts out, right? That rest is radical. Rest is our birthright. We don't have to earn rest. I use this a lot when I'm talking to folks about like taking our weekends, right? And your weekend should be only for you. And yes, there might be some work you have to do, but that needs to be a clear container. Like I'm going to do four hours of work on Saturday and that's it. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the time does not have to be productive. And that's a trap. I think a lot of us as helpers, healers, and change makers fall into is if we're doing nothing, well, there's someone out there who needs us, right? Like we get this, I know for me, I still get the same like anxiety of like, wait, you missed something. There's someone out like you didn't take that food to that one person or you didn't call back, right? Like that always comes up for me. And what I notice, and I have surveyed this in the presentations I've done, is for many of us who are helpers, healers, and change makers, when we have a week off, it takes two days to get into a rest mode. We might enjoy one or two days of vacation. And then the last one or two days, we are ramping back up to come back. Oh, gosh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Have you noticed that? Totally. And so many of us get sick on our days off or on our vacations because again, we're going, going, going. Our nervous system is being held and regulated to dysregulation. And then we finally get a time to rest and everything goes. <laughs> and that happens so often to the people that I work with. Mm. So again, we've, we've remembered and reconnected to the work that we do and who we are. We have regulated and rebalanced ourselves and the work that we do in a way that works for us and can keep us healthy. Then we're going to pull into our rituals and rhythms to really bring ourselves back to a foundation of this is who we are. 
and, and, and a solid foundation so that when things are crazy, we're good. Mm-hmm. And then that final rest and restore really taking time to do nothing. And I, yes, sleep it part is part of that, but even beyond sleep, having an hour a day, um, that is just yours. And I know for many folks, if you have kids, I, I get a lot of eye rolls like, Oh yeah. <laughs> um, maybe not an hour, maybe a half hour, maybe, maybe five minutes. And I found during the pandemic, just going to my car, like for five minutes of silence in my car is sometimes enough to recharge me for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, beautiful. So a couple of things came to mind. Um, One is just again, to emphasize the idea that it's really important not to have to wait until you're in a crisis uh, to start implementing these strategies. If you have output, you need to recharge. And so it's like, you don't have to wait until things are extreme in your body and you're getting sick or you're just absolutely exhausted to implement this and start thinking about this. Um, when it, when I like to really like conceptualize stress as being this relationship between demands and pressure and the resources that we have to, to meet our demands. And when we, when the resources run low, but demands stay high, we experience the, the worst types of stress, the overwhelming distress. And so in order to prevent that or minimize that, we have to either reduce demands and or increase resources. And reducing demands can look like, you know, delegating a task to someone else or just walking away from a project or changing a situation increasing resources i mean there's there's so many resources right and i I like to categorize them into external and internal too there's external resources like money which definitely makes life easier but then there's those inner resources like energy and skills and intelligence and just motivation and these are the resources that we can i think i think it's important to essentially build patterns of replenishing activities into your lifestyle Um, and I'll also add, you know, that when you were talking about forest bathing and and rest and restore, I've had the experience many times where I kind of, I think I'm not really stressed out. I think I'm decompressed, but then I like really relax maybe with a massage or going into the forest is where this has happened most often. And I'm out there and it's like the nature is like permeating me. And I feel relaxed on another level. And I'm like, oh, this is what it's like to be relaxed. I haven't felt this in a minute. And it's so crucial to, to kind of just build it into your schedule. Like just assume that if you've been going, you're not deeply relaxed. You haven't fully restored. And it's worth just, just planning for it. Just make kind of making yourself do whatever exactly brings you a sense of deep relaxation and doing that regularly. Yes. Yes. And I remind folks, no is a complete sentence. (laughs) Justify a no, like putting those boundaries up for your time and your energy and your attention. And you can do it in a nice way. Like, you know, I, I would love to, but I'm overloaded right now, or I'd love to, but that that won't fit in my schedule. But as helpers, healers, and change makers, we are yes people. We want to be the ones that people come to for, for support. We want to say, yes, we want to help people. Mm. And like you said, there is a limit to that. I work a lot with our homeless kids. And 
you know, again, I, I can make referrals to housing. I can make referrals to rent support. I can make referrals to food, but I cannot create more housing in the Bay Area. <laughs> you know, I cannot make housing prices more affordable. Um, and, and so when people tell me, like, can you help me find an, a, a house or an apartment? You know, I have to say no. And it doesn't feel good in my body, even though I know the answers obviously will no, of course I can't. It doesn't feel good. So we do a lot of running around and trying to piece things together and that over that does us in. Mm. Um, so it is really important. And you're right. We, we are, we regulate at a hum, right? Like we can regulate to dysregulation. We're good at that. So like the minute that we're here, we're like, yeah, this is fine. And then we get a little bit relaxation. We're like, oh, that feels good. But it's not until we really sink in. We're like, oh, oh, this is it. Right. And that I will say, that's one of the things I found with sound healing. Um, I, you know, at first I'm like, oh, what is this? Right. But in sitting in one, like sound really does give you a container. It, it builds structure into those, the ways that we just kind of become ourselves. So for me, when I'm hearing, when I'm in a sound healing session, I get deep rest. I, I mean, I just go out, I probably snore too. I don't know. But after that, you know, 30 to 60 minutes, my body feels rested yes. in a way that I, you know, I'm very cerebral. I'm very like, I want to read it. I want to understand it. Give me the research mm-hmm. so for me to get, I have to get out of my head and into mm-hmm. my body. And that's, I fight it a lot because I'm good up here. <laughs> I know what I'm doing up here mm-hmm. down here. I'm, I don't know, but that's what, that's kind of what happens to a lot of us, right? From the neck up is where we focus. And then when we get that pit in our stomach, we're like, Oh, well, I better just work more. That'll, that'll take care of that. <laughs> Instead of saying, what is this feeling trying to tell me? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's telling me I just need to eat something, but maybe it's telling me that the person who I'm talking to, there's a safety issue here and I need to make another decision, right? Yeah. Like, so really being aware of that before it bulldozes us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have talked to so many educators, nurses, physicians, social workers who are dealing with serious medical issues like Bell's palsy or a stroke or, you know, hypertension, um, migraines that are like debilitating. And it's not until they really kind of take a stock of everything they're doing and acknowledge the vicarious trauma and the stress they're holding. And then maybe they have to take some leave. Right. And that's another boundary. Like maybe you do need to take a medical leave from your, mm-hmm. um, from your work for a little while. And that's why I'm thrilled that burnout is actually going to be on the, you know, a medical diagnosis. So I'm maybe people will get time off for it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something where you need to be away from the dysregulation for a period of time. For me, that's an hour or two in the woods. I, you know, thank God I'm in California. I have redwoods that I can walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it can also be in water. Uh, and again, it can be going to the ocean or going to a lake or have doing a cold shower or hot shower and, you know, letting things wash over you. And as you soap up and wash the soap drain, imagine it being all the stress that you're carrying going down the drain, right? Like there are ways to do these practices in very small individual ways and in larger collective ways. Right. Um, and I think that's, what's really important. Again, radical self-care doesn't just mean it's just me, 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 me. It's how am I showing up for myself and for other people? And what do I need in that space? So maybe it's me taking a walk by myself. Maybe it's me do, taking a group to the park, right? Um, it, it, those things can kind of happen in larger solo, <laughs> solo individual things and larger. And yeah. the thing is, we can't afford not to do this. One of the things I realized when I was doing initial self-care as a student 
when no one told me what it was and I was just like, okay, it must be treat yourself. It must be make, you know, make yourself feel better. I didn't think I could afford self-care, but I ended up because I did treat, treat yourself all the time. Um, I ended up with $23,000 of credit card debt in those four or five years because I would buy things that I didn't need on credit, you know, money I didn't have, but it made me feel good in the moment. Retail therapy is real. It feels good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then you take the crap home that mm. you don't need and mm. you have the debt you have to pay off. Mm. Um, so for me, it was really untangling like, okay, well, how did that make me feel? So, you know, I was doing it regularly because it made me feel good. What, how did it make me feel? And is there another way I can do that without, you know, again, it was the fries and shake for a home visit made me feel good. I gained 50 pounds. Um, I started having issues with my joints, right? Because I, I overloaded my body. Um, then I was not sleeping and losing weight. And then that, you know, as an, as a female, I lost my period for a period of time. Ooh, that doesn't work. Then it was also um, happy hour. I worked, you know, we, in, in rape crisis and domestic violence, I had a, some colleagues, we would do happy hour every Friday. Awesome. Then we got stressed out. We'd do it every Thursday and Friday. Okay. Then we would do it like every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Right. But not every day. Cause then, you know, that's ridiculous, but three nights a week going out to drink after work. And yeah, it feels good. And that's actually kind of a ritual, right? Happy hour is a ritual that we, our society has created as a way of releasing steam after work. And, you know, what I saw is some of my colleagues pull into alcoholism. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my colleagues even lost her, her marriage because she was never at home. It was either work or the bar. Mm. Right. So these are, were ways that I was doing self-care, happy hour, retail therapy, rewarding myself with food or things that I thought I needed or deserved. Right. Cause I worked hard. And what I found was I gained weight. I had a ton of credit, <laughs> credit debt that I had to solve. And I credit free now don't have any credit cards. It's all good. Nice. But those were things that I, I thought were working in the moment because they did, mm -hmm. but years later had cumulative effects that were not so great. Nice. So when I'm talking about radical self-care, it's what are the things we, like you said, we can really incorporate into our days that don't have long-term consequences. You're never going to have a long-term negative consequence for forest bathing. Right. You're good. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, if it's something like yoga, maybe if you're overdoing it with on the power end instead of the restorative and yin yoga end, right. You might find some physical issues, but yoga is a big wide world. You can shift a little bit. Hmm. Um, same with meditation and mindfulness that, if you had told me when I was a brand new social worker that that would be my self-care, I probably would have laughed you out of the room. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean I sit for an hour and hum, you know, um, sometimes again, it's a 10 minute meditation and it's just me sitting on my porch watching the hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. but that's all I'm doing. I'm not worried about work. I'm not worried about my clients. I'm focused on the hummingbirds. That's a meditation. So it's, it's all of those kinds of practices and really trying to incorporate them throughout your day. Not all of them at once, but Picking the things that work for you. What is what does your morning routine look like? Um, how can you bring more ritual to it? What does your day look like? Do you have any breaks? Do you make sure you have some space for lunch? Um, you know, maybe you go off campus, maybe you take a walk, maybe you pack your lunch and make it a treat for yourself that day. What do you do at the end of the day? What is your nighttime routine? Right? How how are you sleeping um, on the weekends? How are you engaging? How are you pulling into community? You know, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, it has to change a little bit how we work because we have to be able to change how the work impacts us. And yeah. that's not really on, the only way to do it is for us to kind of 
pull into these practices and have just this foundation of buffer so that nothing can really penetrate it. Cause we can't get away from the stress if we want to stay in this work. Right. Like you said, right. It's the, the stress levels of stress or the, the resources to meet it. Mm. And this is about pulling up those resources. You know, we talk a lot about, um, can't pour from an empty cup. And I talk about like, get it, let's get rid of the cup. We need a lake. We need to create a lake yes. and fill it with water so that anything that comes into that lake can be held. So that's, that's, that's the overall concept of radical self-care It's really building that foundation of support so we can go on into the world, do this work and not be changed by it. Mm. Absolutely beautiful and important. And, um, yeah, let me just collect my thoughts for a moment. Oh, that deep breath felt good. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so much about this seems, strikes me as living very intentionally and not allowing yourself to kind of just be carried away by the current of your habits um, and being just so mindful of what are my patterns of behavior and are they ultimately depleting me or they are they ultimately restoring me? Mm. And it's, it's a really interesting key, uh, aspect of this whole conversation, like the, the question of pleasure, you know, using pleasure and, and alcohol and weed and, and all these things that we like to indulge in where does that fit into this picture? And, and is there a way that you can enjoy smoking a bowl or drinking a glass of wine or eating cookies or watch or binge watching shows? Is there a way that that fits into this without throwing off the balance? And that is probably only a question that an individual can answer for themselves. But perhaps the key is to be very honest with yourself, very mindful of what the effects are and um, and then, you know, of course, learn from from people who have overindulged and have, have kind of had to learn the hard way, because sometimes it's hard to predict what the long term consequences will be. But and in any case, yeah, I think perhaps the principle there is like, what exactly does moderation look like for you? And there's mm -hmm. probably going to be people for whom no, no substances will work. You know, it's just going to be too much of a um, addiction possibility. And then some people will be able to, to manage that in moderation and it'll be ultimately a net positive. So this is, yeah, it's a very interesting aspect of the conversation. Where and I have no, you know, I'm not a Puritan in that way. I, I like a dirty martini on a Friday night, no worries. Right. Um, but it, you're right. It's about intention and, and it is really knowing again, going back to reconnecting and remembering yourself, really understanding the, where you start, so that you understand like, is happy hour a good idea for you or maybe not, right. um, you know, and maybe it is, maybe it is a way to connect in that moment and, and be able to separate from work a little bit. Right. Cause that is a, a collegiality and a connection that's very real. Um, and right. Then there are those folks that for that it's, it's an invitation and a, and kind of a slippery slope. Exactly. Um, if you live in a state where cannabis is legal as I do, Right. As long as you're not doing it during the day. And again, if it's not a as soon as I get home, I got to get high because I cannot be here, you know, versus, right. OK, I'm going to come home, cook dinner, maybe smoke a bowl and go to bed because that actually can help me put me in that space to go to bed. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's, I, I, you know, I don't see those things as bad on their face. I think it's how we use them and, and really being able to notice, like, can I reach that feeling or that same space without that, without that drug or without that thing? Um, Partly because I think, especially when we're talking about like the yoga world or the spiritual world, there is a lot of um, exploration in that way, like ayahuasca and psychosilbin and all those kinds of things um, that I think are beautiful. And I'm curious about myself. And I think sometimes when you are in that space, you can feel like that is the foundation or that's the, the real essence when it's really just a trip. Mm. So really being able to, to decipher like, okay, I felt really free when I was, when I was, you know, when I had that edible, I really was able to detach and not be stressed about anything. Mm. And maybe that felt like I was reaching something real, but that was artificially created for me. Right. So how can I capture that feeling when I'm at work Yes. or when I'm in a space where I don't have access to those things? Um, so yeah, I don't think it's, those are, those things are inherently bad. And and I will say in in this, just to kind of pull in this, the taboos that we're talking about, um, I think sex and orgasm are a really wonderful way to get back into your own rhythm. Mm. Right. And that's something that when we're all grown, grown grownups here, when I talk to other adults about this, one of the first things that goes is your libido Mm. because you're so stressed out. And especially for women, you know, again, it's probably general, but even my husband and I talk about this when, when there's stress in my life, that whole, I'm not even thinking about that mm-hmm. for him. It's the opposite when he's stressed, that's all he wants. <laughs> so we've been able, we've had to have conversations about that. Um, but, but I also know that when I am, you know, and, I, and I'm going to make the disclaimer that it be consensual, but other than that, have your fun. Yeah. Um, when I am in that space regularly, I feel a lot more regulated mm-hmm. and a lot more in my own rhythm than not. Um, so, you know, orgasm can be a rhythm that we pull into for that support. So can, you know, tattooing and piercing. You know, I, I have another friend who's in, who's, does a lot of residential work with juveniles. She's fully tatted and pierced. And we talked a little bit about that because I was during my last burnout, I was having this, this intense feeling that I needed to experience some pain. Right. And we know this from the folks when we work with young people or anyone who has been uh, done some self mutilation, right. We know that they're doing that as a release, as a physical release. I was in a space where I knew I needed a physical release like that, but it had to be something safe. Mm-hmm. And that's when she, my friends like, well, get another tattoo. And I was like, hot damn, that's it. Nice. So I did. And that is exactly the, the ritual and the rhythm that I needed in that moment. I needed to feel pain in a way that was controllable and safe um, to release the amount of stress that I was holding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think any of those things are taboo. I think we just, it's how are you using it, right? Are you using it as an escape? Or are you using it as a way to kind of access the next level, sort of? Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I love what you're saying too about essentially uh, the way I interpret it is kind of integrating maybe what you experienced or even learned from that altered state into reality and not always chasing after it by just continuing to just rely on that substance, but seeing in that I'm, I've done a little exploration like with psilocybin and I've found that there's always some takeaway for me. There's always some very clear lesson or way of kind of being that I'm able to integrate and I never crave another trip. I just kind of opportunities have arisen and I've taken them, but that's, I think, again, just a way of bringing intentionality into everything we do 
And, and when that's the case, we're much less likely to like get out of control with it. And, and then the one more thing I'll add too, I'm sure a high percentage of people listening drink alcohol or use cannabis or some substance, even, even something like coffee or sugar. And I think it's a helpful principle to remember just because a little bit is good, it doesn't mean more is better. <laughs> and I think this is a very common misconception. They're like, oh my gosh, I drank two beers. I feel so good. So therefore four beers might make me feel twice as good, but that's not how it works. There's like a sweet spot and you want to find that sweet spot and, and not let your tolerance build up so that the sweet spot requires more and more to get there. And just, I think this is a way we can help maintain moderation and control over our indulgences. And I do think to your point, like, I do think there are times when those experiences do open up a new realm for us. of like, Oh, I didn't know I could feel like this, mm. but yeah. And that's, that's kind of what pulls into that almost that addiction, right? Of like, Oh, I love this. This feels really good. Let me pull more in. But having those opportunities and those openings and then saying, Oh, okay, now how do I, how do I bring this into my daily life in a, in a sober way? Yes. Um, maybe it can't be done and maybe you just decide, okay, well, once a year, I'm going to do that ayahuasca trip or, you know, right. or on weekends I will, or on, you know, once a month, I, but really um, not letting that escape us because I do know, you know, as helpers, healers and change makers, it's easy to pull into addiction. Um, you know, there can be negative consequences to our work because we're holding so much. And then, you know, again, we're, we're kind of detaching from the people and disconnecting from the people in our lives that we love and sometimes the things that make us happy. And so if, if, as long as we're not pulling into those things as a full escape and like going underground, but like I said, maybe an opportunity to feel something new and different and then recognize like, oh, why does this feel so different from like my, my days? Right. And how can I make that, that not be the case, right? Because exactly. we shouldn't be like suffering all week and then like weekend letting it go and going nuts and then trying to pull it back in on Monday. <laughs> A lot of us in, when we were college age did that. And it only works until you're like 25. <laughs> totally. totally. And at something else, just one last point I'll add to this is I think, you know, like a lot of um, the teachings from many spiritual traditions relate to like attachment and aversion as being, it's kind of very Buddhist, but it, it's, it's one of the sources of unnecessary suffering in the world is the way we get attached and we crave or we're averse and we act on fear. And perhaps that can be applied to the use of these substances or these feel good behaviors to just watch out for the attachment and aversion dynamic. Are you escaping, like you said, averting something that you don't want to experience while sober? Or are you just super attached to the high or the intoxicated feeling? And if those get to be extreme, then you're, you're kind of liable to become too reliant on it addicted Even coffee like you mentioned like it doesn't have to be an illicit drug coffee right, is right. A, is a something that people can be addicted to and for me i always test myself with coffee because i i am a regular coffee drinker mm -hmm. i always will have a period of time especially if we have a break a week or so or a long weekend where i will not have coffee mm -hmm. for a few days and just to kind of re-regulate myself a little yeah. bit and luckily i don't have any like i don't get any major craving withdrawals or anything and there are some days where I just don't, you know, don't make it. And I go the whole day. I'm like, oh, I didn't have a cup of coffee today. But I purposefully do that sometimes, um, like pull it out of my out of my daily routine to see, like, is this something that I'm using as a crutch or do, or am I using it as, you know, a, a, a self-care piece where it's like, right. OK, this does put me in a space where then I can get to work versus right. if I don't have that, 
work's done because you don't want to be attached to things like that yeah. because there might come a time where you can't do something. Um, and again, I, I like to remind folks like, you know, there, we are able-bodied until we aren't mm. right. So there might be things that you are doing that you are becoming reliant on. And then if those things get taken away, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important to evaluate as well. Um, really building in those things that, that either can't be taken away because they're within you, right? Like your breath, mm-hmm. or if it is something that can be removed, okay, if it were removed, right, could I be not attached to it? Could I really have a sense of like, okay, that was fun while it lasted? Um, or am I going to be like, no, oh, I have to have it. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to your point of, I often tell my students and my colleagues, really make a list of some of the self-care practices that you want to pull into or that you can do within your day in a time where you are relaxed and calm, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, right? Because when it, when you're in a crisis level, that's not the time to think of like, oh, I should go to the beach, right? Or I, I don't know, I need to take a cold shower. Like that, in that moment, you are unable to kind of access those things. So having a list literally like written down or sticky notes on your mirror, whatever you need, um, that can be really, really helpful. And sometimes I literally, like when I'm in that crisis mode, I just go straight to my list and like, oh, I don't think I can do that right now. Okay, maybe I can do that. I don't know about that right now. you right. And really kind of seeing like what is accessible to me in that moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you did mention like Netflix or TV shows and things like that. And I think that's actually important regulation. Puzzles are really help, helpful in regulation. Crossword puzzles. Um, I don't know. I, I've noticed over the quarantine, a lot of folks, and I asked this of my students and my colleagues, do you find yourself watching a show or a movie that you've already seen? And at a time when you're stressed out and they're like, yeah, I, I rewatched the Gilmore girls or I did, I watched a movie that I've already seen, but why did I do that? It's like, because you know, the ending it's mm-hmm. predictable. So that actually helps regulate you. It's a calming mechanism mm-hmm. to watch something that you've seen a million times or that, you know, the ending to. Um, so yeah, it's okay to do your Netflix and chill. If that's what really kind of pulls you into that space of calm for a little while. Now, if you're going home after every day and watching TV for six hours and then going to sleep at two in the morning and then getting it right, not the best, best way to do that. But, um, family feud is something that I watch when I'm really stressed out. That's how my husband knows I've had a rough day is when I come (laughs) home and turn on the feud (laughs) because it's the same cadence, right? It's the same, same same uh, show every time, just a different family. Yeah. Um, and that gives me a sense of like, okay, my day has been chaotic. I need to pull into something that's rhythmic and I, and is familiar to me. Let me watch an episode or two of family feud. And then I can like, then we can have a conversation. Nice. So I think um, it's okay. If you find yourself doing those things again, it's all about the awareness and the intention. Hmm. Perhaps the, undercurrent of the whole conversation is like it's so important to like love yourself and to to love yourself enough to take care of yourself and I know that some people don't feel like they love themselves or don't really know how to make sense of that Mm -hmm. and so I suppose it could be a helpful like just thought experiment how would I if I, as weird as it may sound, if I were kind of caring, if I were living in the body or controlling the behavior of the person that I love so much, what would I do? What choices would I make? Mm -hmm. And you know, you would take care of them if you got to be them in a sense. And so 
I suppose you can kind of just take that and internalize it. And just even if you haven't necessarily been shown enough love to love yourself, you know, you haven't been taught how to love you. It's just, it's so, it's what I feel like is at the heart of this. It really and, is. And, and when you're- when back you're, to what we were talking about before with the childhood pieces, but- mm. I, I often say in my presentations, right? Like you are worthy of, of radical okay. self-care. And I repeat that multiple times and you can feel almost the, mm. like really though, am I? Mm. Like people need permission to do this. And again, I think it's because we do not acknowledge explicitly the trauma and the vicarious trauma in the work that we do as helpers, healers, and change makers. I mean, just taking an example of, you know, I one of the things I was paying attention to the summer of 2019, is that the NYPD had 10 suicides in a matter of 30 days, well, 60 days. Mm. From June to August, they had 10 suicides. And these were everyone from a two-year rookie to a 40-year veteran. Mm. And it, it it kind of there wasn't um there wasn't really a, a, a like a like screaming from the rooftops. And part of it is like, yeah, we know policing is challenging, but do we actually like, do we actually, like, cause I don't know any PD that actually has like a built in self care program or a built in way to care for these folks. They are trained. Yes. But I guarantee they're not trained on anything related to their own nervous system. And then they're just put out there and they have to deal with the worst things in of humanity. And, you know, I'm radically a defund the police kind of person, black lives matter activist. And, and I know that our police, the ones who are doing that work directly need radical self-care and and if they had it imagine how things would shift mm. not just for themselves but for the people they serve yes. right like their if their nervous systems were actually regulated not dysregulated to their jobs but actually regulated i would venture that we would see a lot less police brutality and a lot less a lot fewer suicides of police officers mm. it's the same for fire fire folks firemen and fire women their the suicide rate is high I don't think we explicitly say you are going to experience trauma in this work and you are going to absorb vicarious trauma. So here's what we are going to do to protect your, your body, your mind, soul, and spirit. Mm. We don't do that. We don't do it in social work. We don't do it in education. We don't do it in psychology. We don't, right? Like maybe you talk about transference and counter-transference, but okay. do you talk about the practices that you, and the, the, the self-care you have to build in to really be able to modulate that? We really don't. So I think it does lead folks then to assume that there might be something wrong with them if they need this help or if they are burning out or if they are overwhelmed. And then that's when we just kind of sack up, suck it up, keep doing the work because we know we can until we hit that wall. And that wall can be, you know, divorce. That wall can be our kids telling us, hey, mom, when you're here, you're not really here. And I, you know, it'd be nice to have my mom back. Right? Or it can be a health issue. Um, and I think that's what then real, makes us realize like, oh, okay, this work is inherently overwhelming. And, and that is literally like, we are doing the work that nobody else in society wants to do, right? When I'm going to a hotel to meet up with a family who has you know, been evicted and they're in a hotel, nobody else wants to go there with me, right? When police have to show up to a homicide scene, nobody wants to be there with them looking at dead bodies. This is real trauma in our work and these systems aren't acknowledging it. So, and what I've noticed is then those of us individually, we burn out, we leave the, we leave our jobs, we leave our professions 
And the folks that we serve in those professions then have the high rates of turnover, right? And again, I saw this the most with my foster kids. At first, they all had the same caseworker for a long period of time, like two or three years. And then when the recession hit, there was a lot of turnover to the point where my kids would get a new caseworker almost every six months. Mm -hmm. And when my youngest daughter left the system emancipated, there was supposed to be a you know, big hearing where they really congratulate them for all the work they've done. And they talk about their history in the system. She met a brand new caseworker that morning before she went to court mm -hmm. and she was devastated. She's like, I've been in the system for eight years. And now this person's going to go in there and just say, yeah, she's a great young lady. I hope I wish her well. Like, Right. So that turnover that we're experiencing because of the burnout and because of the lack of acknowledging this impacts those that we intend to serve. Mm. And we lose that historical knowledge. We lose that organizational knowledge when we have people who have five years or less experience in any organization. Right. So it impacts all of us. And there are some things that those of us who are doing this work can take control over in the moment, give ourselves that buffer so we can continue to do the work and continue to change those systems so that we can see this shift. Mm. It's kind of a really big and circular, but what I've noticed is this is the, this is kind of the easiest way in. Yes. And then we can really shift to change those systems. But if we're all burning out and leaving the profession, change is going to get stifled. Yep. And that's what I've been seeing as, as a social worker in the last 10 years, where it's, you know, there's not the lot that that loss of institutional memory is real. You know, when I'm in a school district and we're doing things the same way we did them five years ago because the people that did them five years ago left mm -hmm. and we didn't do that program because they all left. And now we're going to go back and do that thing instead of moving forward. Right. That's really infuriating. And that's what makes people want to leave those systems. Yeah. Um, and I believe if we as individuals are doing this radical self-care, those systems will have to change because we will make them change. Mm. versus them shifting and changing us, which is what's happening right now. Right. Wow, great breakdown. And I see that that's cir circular nature of all of this. Mm. Uh, I see that in my mind right now. And, and yeah, it's just, it's like ultimately by practicing radical self-care, you become a more effective person and it doesn't at all take away from your work. It completely um empowers you to do your work more effectively whatever that work may be and and it may involve changing the very systems that tend to burn us out so quickly and that and that cause all this turnover which yeah it's a, it's an interesting point i never really thought about that about the way that the the things that make people leave a profession often stay in place because the people who left the profession left the profession and the newcomers can't foresee that they're going to essentially follow the same destiny so it's like status quo sticks for too long in certain systems wow fascinating and it's when you see it and you feel it and you're in that system it's infuriating <laughs> right and and then that's what you know then you have to decide do i am i also going to leave and that's a valid response again if you have to leave you have to leave or am i going to get in here and put my feet in even stronger and be able to handle this and also advocate to change the system mm -hmm. because that's the challenge, right? We it's the work we do can be so challenging that we have to pull in and minimize our, you know, what we're our purview kind of, nice. um, or if we are buffering for ourselves and we can hold more, 
then we can do that individual work, but also say, you know what, what's happening to this person isn't right. I need to change the system. I need to go to that council meeting. I need to write that letter. I need to show up at that, what, you know, what that rally or that, that session or whatever it is. Um, because I do know there are a lot of folks that just say like, well, no, I did what I needed to do. The rest of that's not my job. And that's totally valid. And nothing's going to change if, if that's the case. So it is really about how do we, how can we change the systems without them changing us mm-hmm. and, and really stay in long enough to, to shift and see that change? Hmm. Wow. Somehow, somehow we've been talking for an hour and a half Ooh. and that flew by. And <laughs> what would you say? So I told you I could talk. <laughs> you, did, you did mention that, but it was just, you know, pure gold. So... You know what I'm about to do after this? What? Nothing. That's what I like to hear. Nothing. Love it. <laughs> Love it. I have a call with a student and then I'm going to do nothing after that. Beautiful. Enjoy your nothing and I'm going to enjoy mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm so glad we're connected. And I, I, yeah, I hope we can stay connected and talk again. And yeah, thanks to everyone who's still listening. I hope you can find very um, obvious ways to apply everything that we're saying. So again, thank you so much, Nicole, for the work you do in the world and for coming on today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and I will would love to come back and, and chat more about any, any of the topics. We can talk about ACEs, we can talk about sound healing, whichever way you want to go. Beautiful. Then, then it'll happen. Awesome. All right. If you like this video and you want to see more, please subscribe.